You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is this The is hour. hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The Hour is Ari's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. On today's show, I'll be driving around London with actress in the passenger seat as he tells us about the role that radio has played in his life, both as an artist and a music fan. And Martha Pazienti Caden will be exploring the term techno-feminism by meeting the individuals who are contributing to the progression of equality on the dance floor, including Umfang from Diswoman, Sybil and Jay from Siren, Mama Snake from A Pyron Crew, and more. But first, it's Behind the Track, our regular feature in which artists tell us the story behind tracks they wrote that went on to be classics. In a profile feature last year, Matt Unicombe said of K-Hand, if you aren't familiar with her, your favorite DJ probably is. He was making the point that the Detroit artist has made many incredible house and techno tracks in her long career, but she perhaps hasn't got the recognition that she deserves. One of those tracks is the untitled B1 from the Project 5 EP, which was released back in 1997. It's one of those devastatingly simple house tracks that might make you remember why you fell in love with the genre in the first place. Okay, so this was done in the late 90s. It was great. I mean, we I was, you know, doing what I'm doing today. I was traveling. I had made this record, this particular one. It's, it's kind of weird because I remember uh, when I made the record, uh, everything's going good, you know, like it's going today. And when I made the record, I pressed up, you know, all these copies and we had this trip going to London with uh, Underground Resistance and a few other people, uh, artists from Detroit. And I remember taking at least like a hundred copies with me. And I'm like, I'm gonna hand these out, I'm gonna hand these out. Nobody really knew what this record was. I, you know, there's really no titles on it. I'm saying, I'm just gonna try to try it this way. It's always sold from the beginning of the press all the way till today. And I'm still selling. I have to, I have to ship some records today. I'm still getting feedback, uh, you know, the Black Madonna, uh, Mike Huckabee, just loads of loads of DJs <laughs> um, and people and fans and uh, getting a lot of responses back. I heard Detroit um, Swindle guys about a month ago and they were saying, wow, I was even I was just one year old when this record came out. And uh, they were saying that how really good it was and that it sounded fresh to them. It sounded new. So, you know, everything appears to be as, quote unquote, Nina Kravitz was a, uh, you know, the, a lot of the tracks that came out in the 90s 
pretty much is the same sound today. It's it's nothing old about it. It's just that we know technically that the 90s was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. But the most music in the 90s sound like it's fresh. To, it was done last week or yesterday because it's the same rolling 909 drum machines or the 808. It's, you know, the infamous rolling. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what is he? What is he? What is he? On, on, on. Tell me what is he? What is he? What is he? On, on, on. Tell me, tell me. Um, B1, that is the Michelle DiGiello, uh sample. This, this is, you know, this is my style at the time in the 90s. <laughs> you know, this is my style or my sound that I wanted. And I felt it sounded good with her voice. So, you know, one little snippet, boom. So all the tracks were done here in Detroit. Yeah. I was living on um, Van Dyke right near Belle Isle here in Detroit. So, you know, a lot of, uh, all of my tracks are made here in Detroit in my catalog. Uh, at the time, I was associated more with the techno artists like Underground Resistance, Jeff Mills, but there was uh, a few house friends, of course, and DJs. Um, I would just give them a record and they didn't really, then it's like nobody was really paying attention. You know what I mean? It, it seemed, it appeared that way. It was just like, here's my new record, here's my new record. And with no information being on it, nobody knew what it was. They had to play it in order to hear what it was. And so as time went on, people started catching on. Well, let me check out this, let me check out that. And they started catching on. And especially Nina Kravitz, she she pointed me out and came here two years ago and met me. Then now people were like, oh, let me check out uh, K-Han. Nina Kravitz is checking her out. Let me check her out. And so... But although it's more on the techno reign, experimental reign, I guess it just determines who discovers you that makes a difference on how people really will pay attention to an artist. A few weeks back, a colleague and I drove over to Hackney Wick in East London and picked up Darren Cunningham, the artist who you'll know as actress. The idea was to discuss the important role that radio has played in his work and some of his favourite stations. So we figured, what better environment to talk to him in than driving around London? If you'll excuse the pun, the subject became a vehicle for Cunningham to muse on the various aspects of his creative life as he flicked through the vast sea of stations that make up the FM dial in London. Cunningham released his latest album, Acid, last month, and it was further confirmation of his status as one of electronic music's most consistently brilliant artists. Is that about the volume you get it at home? Yeah. So that was us attempting uh, to listen to City Lock. Um, I actually switched it on this morning and the presenter was giving a, a thought for the day. 
um, he said something along the lines of without courage you can't practice any other virtue is that kind of um, reflective of the tone of the station generally yeah actually it is and um, and it's almost a blessing when you can pick it up to be honest with you um, I tend to hit it at very sort of poignant moments for a pirate to have that still do those sort of thoughts for the days and contemporary news but from a very visceral angle is quite penetrating. So does it feel as though um, the station's quite closely tied with the community it kind of serves would you say? Yeah I mean just the name of the station says it all really it's locked into the city it tells you what's going on it's a frequency it's a different different sort of frequency it's not uh, certain people might want you to listen to or hear but um, but that's what those type of radio stations are there for. Do you have any personal theories on like why there is such an appetite for radio in London? There's always been a sort of pirate mentality about radio because you couldn't get the music you could you couldn't get the music on the nationwide paid and subscribed radio stations. Yeah. Um, and it's you know the the best music actually was never being covered by 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 those stations so um, there had to be you know the uh, sort of uh, a vacuum was created and it needed to be it needed to be filled and so you got all these like pirates who risked themselves to, to give the give the music to the people yeah and uh, I think uh, that is always that is all that's that is certainly a fabric of um, sort of uh, UK culture our culture has been built a lot by by radio and by pirate radio but also it's um, it's it's sort of nourished um, na nationwide radio because then you have stations like well BBC essentially like creating platforms like one extra and, uh, and then you see obviously rinse FM sort of going a little bit further and making what they do more like completely legit and whatever you're crossing frequencies all the time and you're always going to pick up there's always a conversation that i'm picking up like whether it's on lbc or something like that you can quickly get a feel for the uh, the mood of the country through radio money 40. Well, we're going through the Blackwall Tunnel now, so it's probably impossible to get this one. Let's see if we get anything out of the other side. Chicago. <laughs> I mean, in the case of what that that tune just came up as well, like I'm not a massive fan of that particular tune. I must be honest with you. I do like some Chicago tunes, but it'll probably come. You know, when I when I switch it on and it comes on, it might be at a point where I've been listening to like loads of like classical music or something like that. Okay. And the song will come up and I'll go, oh, they're playing Chicago again, and it'll just be like as a trigger. It'll just be like. Maybe I'll just change up and like and listen to a bit of Chicago or something like that. So it's just once I come out of the studio, my brain's like just somewhere else, and this again, it'll just just sort of like 
bring me straight back to to um, straight back to the real world and actually re-engage and change my change my um, change the way that my mind is sort of um, floating out there. I guess. Would you do that with any other forms of like mainstream media or entertainment? Like, do you have a tally? Do you watch TV, for example? Uh, well, my studio isn't in my house anymore, so I don't have. Uh, so, um, whereas when I was in my house, there was more distractions. Now I don't have a TV, so um, my days much more focused on on watching, um, watching, um, making music. It's funny. I was watching something with um, some into some some documentary that um, Pet Shop Boys were doing. And they did an inter they did an interview with Jacques Leconte because he was doing some sort of production with him. And apparently he has like they were like <laughs> they were laughing because they were like he has the television on full blast like while he's making tunes. And like he's like they've never met anybody who can do that. Like and he's just like he's just like yeah yeah I have I I just can't I I just can't because because I feel like it gives me some sort of order. So if like. The breakfast show is on. I know that it's breakfast show, and, it, and once the lunch, they start getting into lunchtime, I know that it's time for lunch because this certain programs on. And uh, so he's like, he, so he's able to split his mind completely, and you know, and work in that way. Uh, whereas TV for me is much more like, uh, okay, I've been listening to this baseline on repeat for about three hours. Uh, maybe I should go and watch some TV for, for like 20 minutes or something like that and on TV like usually I'll just go straight to sort of um, f film 4 or TCM and watch a, like some what black and white films they've got on at that time probably like a James Cagney gangster film okay. and get like really into that or you know um, so you're still kind of connecting with it on uh, at least a certain intellectual level yeah, it's, it's sort of you know appreciating another I'm, art form. I'm constantly working though because like I did a I did a record called um, Grey Over Blue, and um, the only way that came about was I'd already been working on a, a piano part, and um, and uh, it was one of those moments where I was like, all right, okay, I've been working on this piano part for quite a while. I'm gonna watch some TV, and they were showing this really obscure western on TCM and uh, luckily in the in the UK if you got Sky you can sort of like do uh, sort of what they call it uh, where you can pause your TV basically yeah, and yeah. rewind and uh, there was this particular moment and this cowboy walks into the saloon and uh, somebody's playing this really somber piano uh, piano part on it and I was like, oh, that could that, that could quite work. So I go upstairs, get my recording gear, get set up, sample it, take it back into the studio, and then start overlaying it over the this different piano piece that I that I'd that I'd worked into it. And it kind of came together and worked. And but what what it was adding was it was adding this sort of like even more lo-fi aesthetic from these sort of really early sort of I don't know thirties cowboy film to to mixing it in with the sort of love fineness what it was that I was doing and and sort of that is how that's how my work comes about a lot of the time to be honest with you.
let's pick up magic. Um, so that's 105.4. Songs you love now with even more 80s and 90s. This is Magic Drive Time with Richard Allenson. So Magic's actually among the uh, top 10 most listened to stations in the UK. Okay. Um, but I'd read that your uh, kind of relationship with it is um, it sort of go, goes beyond music almost. You'd mentioned that there was a kind of um, a production element to it that you sort of admired. Maybe if you didn't like directly you know tune in for the music yeah it's it's like when it's like anything else i think um any profession really you kind of i, I need to keep my ear in and um i need to sort of when i'm away from the studio stay in in a certain zone and keep my ears in a certain sort of uh keep my ears busy sometimes not busy at all and so like pure silence and just listen to just driving and and the ambience of driving but mostly when I'm making whilst, mostly whilst I'm actually making and and recording um, I find it important to particularly with overground stations to sort of keep one foot in the real world so I keep quite rooted in that sense and um, but also just to just to maintain that focus of like uh, listening to production uh, and and just just continuing that learning really learning yeah, about yeah, sound see. and how it's put together um what's your relationship with pop music been like historically would you say you're an appreciator of it yeah always like um i think everyone like i grew up with top of the pops um and so it was a thing do you know what i mean pop music it was an accessible uh, platform. My earliest memories, like sort of post-punk, when punk was coming towards an end, really, and it was starting to get really sort of quite commercial. So you were seeing a lot of like coloured mohawks on the streets and things. And so I must have been about six at, the, at this time. And this is when I started to really um, f could feel the energy of this creativity and this music, and it started coming through with like um, the synth synth pop. Um, era and you know the music that was coming down from Sheffield and out of Manchester, uh, Human League, Eurythmics. Um. Were you able to connect what you were seeing on the streets, you know, the people and the fashion and this sort of thing, with what you were seeing on television? Yeah, it was really close up actually. What you were seeing on the box and what you were seeing on the streets was really close. There's no internet, you know what I mean? So the, um, the, it was a completely, completely different ambience. The noise was that sort of background noise that is really part of our uh, culture today just didn't exist we had three stations to choose from and um, and so like our choices were limited um, and so yeah for, because of that you was m you I, I definitely felt much closer to the music but you also felt um, the sort of there was an invisibility about it as well do you know what I mean? So all you were seeing was the technology. You didn't necessarily know how it was made or who was doing what or... So it's uh, like all you had to go on was the shots of it through the top of the pubs or something like this. That's it's why, like yeah, that's why the aesthetics of then are so strong for people today and and, and immediately a go-to because, um, because they were like the, the starting blocks, if you like, of, 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 of popular, like, popular music that was being bought and invested in by 
a youthful generation. So you're obviously getting uh, ready to release the album at this point and um, kind of as we touched on um, when you're in the writing process you're in kind of a an insular headspace let's say yeah. uh, you know you're kind of uh, very very closely inhabiting your own thoughts and sort of uh, you know shaping things and figuring things out yeah. um, how do you find the switch of gears when it comes time to kind of have the conversations with the outside world and sort of you know present your project to the world is that like ever jarring or you know do you or do you just see it as kind of part and parcel of the same thing uh a bit of both because it's highly likely that i've moved on to something else already it can be a bit jarring because also my memory is like it's a fading memory for sure like the more <laughs> try to think of things i'm just like you told me this about two seconds ago, right? And uh, but I, to be honest with you, I've just completely forgotten what you just said. Because um, my mind's just thinking about the, the music. There's something there that is kind of figuring something out that I left already in the studio, and that when I get back to the studio, I want to have had it figured out so that I can get to work on it again. There's that. There's that sort of compulsion that I have all the time back to the studio. So, um, so it's almost like a, at least a portion of your brain is always in the studio. It's always, yeah. I mean, if you sort of did have to, um, you know, characterise the album in broad strokes, like what would you say at this exact moment in time? I would say it's a, it's a, it's a, a refreshed palette. It's like an update, really. Hence, uh, Chrome. You know, I think, I think my music has been described as sort of grey grey tone in the past and I think the 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 sort of the logical progression from a greyness is is uh, is a sort of and and the clearing of that, that palette and refreshing of that palette is is more of a sort of um refined version of that greyness and to me that was like chrome in 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 a way so uh that's how I started moving towards that sort of um aesthetic as an idea um and you know much more working with synthesis as well um whereas i work with synthesis on previous albums a lot of it was built out of shards of 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 uh sounds like really quite um uncharacteristic sounds sounds which don't have that much timbre and and so therefore in terms of you know naturally the sound would be, be quite lo-fi and quite dead in a way um, whereas now because I'm more working with pure tone synthesis and but then resynthesizing in the way that I would work with samples usually it's coming out a slightly different way Every time I tune into Lightning at the moment, Teddy Teddy Riley's kind of emerging back on the on the airwaves. Okay, so we're talking about like a mid to late nineties kind of. Yeah, tip. yeah, yeah. Should we try and find Flex as the final station that's on ninety nine point seven? Um, 
yeah, sometimes I'll just be in this mood. You know, I just want to sit back and just be like. Such a London kind of headspace. Yeah, yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, sick like MCs and, you know, bringing it the sun, you know, it just gets you straight into it and you're just like, yeah. And uh, that's also quite important for me as well because I don't go out as much as I used to. What sort of relationship do you think your music has to the club at this point? I mean, you know, to take the new record, for example, um, yeah. there are certainly tracks on there that, you know, I can imagine DJs playing, but yeah. I would also imagine that, you know, these type of situations were quite far from your mind when yeah. you were writing them. I'd, I've never, I've never, ever made music for DJs, ever. And I've never, ever made music to work functionally on the dance floor. If it happens, it's usually by chance or by co you know um, I don't really believe in coincidence but it's just it's just happened or I've been in a mind state where I've urged it to be that way but in in no case since I've been making music have I ever aimed to make music that is um, compatible for DJs it's most it's music that's compatible for my listening firstly um, and then after that it's just a question of whether it's um, in the sort of landscape of electronic music, whether I think it's applicable or worthy, I guess. I, you said earlier you actually have trouble picking up the station, but in some ways that um, imperfection kind of is agreeable to you. Yeah, the music that I find really interesting and uh, is music where it's obscured where you can't, it's not quite clear view, it's kind of fighting against the sort of, it's just trying to sort of break out a little bit, do you know what I mean? And, um, and I so mean, for me, you have to listen to it, listen a bit closer just to hear what's going on underneath. And I know what the production sounds like in, 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 its, clear, in its clear form, but I'm just interested in how it's being weathered by the sort of, the low fineness of the frequency and all these sort of things. And would you say that's kind of a guiding principle in what you do in your own music? I'd say it's a it's, it's a guiding principle in terms of the type of art that I like. You know, I'm not a massive fan of hyper-realist -real, art, but I am a fan of art that's slightly defocused or slightly dirty or grainy or, or, or is literally just quite... Um, is, is just quite distressed in yeah. some way but that the you can see the beauty coming through it do you know what i mean these are the things that these are the, these are the type of things that like, i like that's how i like to present my music mostly as well um but then there's different forms of that like the 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 the, the way that something's distressed doesn't need to be so like so obvious it can be done in 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 a, a few different ways to sort of filter the levels of that sort of um. so something that's pleasing on the ear almost rather than like you know people think about distress and distortion they're thinking a lot of the time about quite aggressive gestures yeah it's, it's kind of talking about something that's almost the inverse of that it's, it's about filling the space as yeah. well um some people as a mechanism in music some people fill the space in different ways um, some people like to fill the space with like echo reverb um, 
some people like to fill that fill that space with um, ciphers of noise, yeah. you know. And I'm much more in the uh, sort of dry sound ish, but with a sort of slightly uh, with 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 elements, with some elements of noise filling filling that space. Would you say that the way you approach making music um, inherently generates imperfections? You know, is there something about the way you've set yourself up or the way that you like to work that sort of, um, you know, contains these happy accidents or, you know, these rough around the edges moments? Yeah, the thing is, I just don't see them as necessarily as imperfections as such because there's nothing that, there's nothing that I can see that is perfect other than the, um, other than sort of the way that nature has been put together in a way. Yeah. Um, so like the, uh, there's a certain level of prejudice where I'm like, well, just because something is clear in fidelity doesn't, to me, does not make it perfect. Yeah. Um, They're not synonyms. Yeah. Um, but I do see what it is you're saying, and and yeah, but that is, it's an aesthetic choice. The new Actress album features in our recent roundup of April's Best Music, which I suggest you check out if you want to catch up on all of the great music that's come out over the past few weeks. Next, our producer Martha takes a look into the ideas behind a movement that's recently been gathering online attention, techno-feminism. There's been some great coverage of the rising amount of femme collectives making waves in the techno world. And some not so great, straight up bizarre wave riding and marketing initiatives that have come along with it. I spent some time talking to the inspirational individuals who are contributing to the progression of equality on the dance floor. My journey starts online, following a hashtag and general Twitter buzz phrase that's been whipping up some attention. Techno-feminism. I noticed a few people posting this up in their Twitter bio, a space where Twitter encourages us to tell the world about ourselves. You only get 160 characters to communicate what you're all about, so I figured that those that do put techno-feminism up there have a strong connection to the phrase and wear it kind of like a badge. I tracked down a few of these users to find out if that's the case. I'm Ursula Zanadu. I first encountered the term techno-feminism because of advertising for Umfang's party. I placed it in my Twitter bio because it acts as a shorthand for what I want to do and what I care about, which is making real space for women and femmes within electronic music. So techno-feminism operates as a guiding principle for me. My name's Amisha. I'm, I'm actually a math student, um, but I've always been into electronic music. Um, I'd only like recently seen the term techno-feminism tossed about. I'm, I'm still kind of curious myself as to whether there's some kind of like coherent philosophy behind it. I, I don't know, or whether that's a sort of ongoing thing. I like this concept as a sort of, as a counter to this sort of mantra that's quite patronising of like, oh, you know, you've got to play something for the ladies. I'm Rina and I've put techno-feminism in my Twitter bio um, after I saw it on the on a Disc Woman merch and I was like, oh, that's it. Like, that's really concisely, like, summarises what I want in music right now. 
it's two things that are really important to me. It's two things that really enrich my life, which is like techno and feminism. So I guess in that sense, it makes sense for me to be like, oh, what should I put in my bio? Techno feminism. But it goes beyond that for me. What I really want to see in dance music right now is women being able to go out either to go behind a deck or on the dance floor just dancing where you know they can do so without being groped harassed talked down to mansplained what bpm or rca cables are and really bridging that sense of community where we really just respect music and each other's passions for it so straight away the phrase techno feminism is linked to the mighty disc woman collective and to co-founder umfang a Brooklyn-based DJ and producer. I met with Umfang while she was over in London to play a show and to announce her new album. I showed her the clips you just heard. It's cool to hear that people engage with that term. Um, I don't know, I'm just fascinated to like listen to what people take that as and hear p- different people's interpretation. I think that's really special. Like uh, my friend Signe in New York also, like every time I see her, she like has a new way of explaining to me why Technofeminism is really an important term. <laughs> so what is your relationship to that phrase? Technofeminism came from a tweet that my friend retweeted and um, I googled it and not much comes up. There's just a book called Technofeminism, but it's not actually like a word or anything um, or a term that's been used for much else. Um, so when Desk Woman started, I became more outward about my politics, I guess, surrounding um, booking women. And uh, although I had been throwing a party booking women for a few years, um, it didn't really have like a name or like an identity. Uh, so I named it Technofeminism shortly after we started Disc Woman, just because I kind of felt embarrassed about like being open about um, booking women and being like political in that way and I didn't want to admit to myself or anyone else that like women had it harder or something like that I just wanted uh, to do it kind of quietly and like have the musicians make the statement on their own um, but I found that that wasn't really helping make quick change and it wasn't really empowering everyone that didn't have like maybe the personality to like be that hard ass about it Um, So now we're just more out about it and uh, people connect with that actually a lot. And it's, I don't know, I think it's just, it's kind of cheeky to me, like it's kind of silly in a way, but uh, it's also like really to the point that like, especially like the techno world being so like whitewashed and male dominated, especially in Europe, it's just like a good thing to like remind people of the problems within what it is now. I'm quite interested in this book because, like you say, it does come up when you search and it's a sociology book which was published in 2004 and it was actually about like women's relationship to technology rather yeah. than techno but I kind of like how it's been given this like new take in relation to techno music. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I think it's relevant like uh, in a lot of ways just yeah, w- women in technical fields have uh, experienced similar troubles. So tonight is all about Find Me in the Dark and Disc Woman, the party at Corsica. It's so good to see Disc Woman reaching across oceans. It's amazing. I can't believe it. Tell me a bit about your involvement with Disc Woman and the other amazing women that are on board. Me, Frankie and Christine founded Disc Woman um, sort of by accident. 
and yeah, it's just kind of built and built and built until we got um, like a big uh, branded deal that gave us enough money to like become a business. And then uh, I don't know, we're just trying to like see where it goes and stay relevant. Why did you feel like forming Disc Woman? Like, what was the climate around that time that made you form it? It was not intentional. It, it wasn't like we had a plan to make a crew or anything like that. It was just that uh, we knew a lot of great women doing great things and we wanted to feature that. I think as we've progressed, we've sort of internalized more like what that there was a problem. But I think it really did start from a positive place of just featuring people that we were really excited about. And now that the conversation is more out in the open of uh, just like underrepresentation, now we're kind of way more awake to how much of a problem it was and how much that conversation needed to be brought out into the open publicly. And now we're more engaged with uh, the troublesome aspects of bookings and uh, pay equality and stuff like that. I was wondering if you felt any kind of like energy coming into electronic music at the moment, like maybe a political energy of any kind. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say if I'm just more attuned to it now that this uh, woman is so like engaged in um, politics, I guess. Uh, not that any of us weren't before, but now uh, that's just like where all of our heads are with it. Uh, and it's more of an outward discussion. So I think like a lot of people have felt this way for a long time, but uh, it maybe just wasn't such a public discussion. Um, but, and also the discussion of whitewashing within techno music is out in the open now. And now there's like a conscious effort to recognize and be more respectful to the founders of this music that aren't necessarily seeing the same uh, profit as um, a lot of the younger people and just that like history is significant and that um, hiding the history of black and brown folks is such a common problem and the more we can sort of vocalize like this came from black intellectuals and this is an important thing to acknowledge um, it's really significant to me you know and I don't want that to be hidden on the other side of the city, I arranged to link up with Sybil and Jay of London-based collective Siren. We sat down outside by the canal in Haggerston, so be prepared to hear some wildlife. He's oh. <laughs> got some opinions on techno-feminism. Really scare me. I'll tell you ladies what's what. <laughs> this bro's come up. Oh my god. Hi, I'm Sybil. I'm Jay. And we're in the collective Siren. We put on like queer parties in London, we host a radio show, we, we publish a zine, we publish scenes, uh, we collect like loads of content from female writers, which is like super exciting. Our aim is to try and make dance floors and lineups more diverse for women and non binary and genderqueer identified people. Our most recent event was a collaboration we did with Chapter 10 at Block. Our event was called Chapter Femme. The aim was to put on an event celebrating queer femme culture and we had Kay Hand play from Detroit, we had Debonair playing from London. The event was hosted by Victoria Sin and at the start of the event we had some film screenings of queer erotica. 
the crowd was amazing. Definitely the sunrise whilst Kay Hand was playing, like four till six was a really special moment. So yeah, all girls to the front, which is also a very big thing at our party. And you both DJ as well? Yeah, we DJ as well. A lot of people like to say we're a DJ collective. I think we're more a collective that also happens to have a lot of DJs. We do do stuff as DJs, yeah. but we're trying to make it clear that that is separate from what Siren is necessarily. We're doing some radio workshops at the moment with NTS, whereby we're going to have each month a new NTS host does a sort of masterclass and we get in 10 to 12 girls and non-binary people to come and learn from that host, get the basics of how to do radio, basics of how the equipment works, and they've gone really, really well so far. Where do you think you first heard this phrase, techno-feminism? Because that's what Umfang calls her night, thought it was a good name for her night and the work that they do in New York. I just mainly saw it on Twitter and Twitter bios, uh, loads of people who like following Siren would have that in their bio, so. What's your impression of that phrase? I guess it encapsulates quite a lot of ideas that people are feeling at the moment and trying to uh, power in the music industry back into women's hands creating a kind of movement I think it's also like about building a community um, of women who like obviously enjoy music well in the UK you guys are kind of at the forefront of this way of thinking how have you seen the conversation move on since you popped up we just started this as a group of women originally just to put on a club night which booked women and non-binary artists as headliners and, and that was it and it's just there's been a lot of attention thrown on us and a lot of hype around this subject I think you know on the one hand it's great when women are owning the phrase techno-feminism but then when it kind of gets sold back to them as a trendy thing the dynamic changes for us it's always important for things to be grassroots to be DIY like if we can do something ourselves we will and we're quite wary of like people putting this <laughs> attention on us yeah. It's been quite sudden, but I think mainly the thing that got us doing this was like just all the articles about where all the women DJs and all of this and no one was doing anything. It was just like loads of clickbait and like popular like, oh, feminism and music. And, uh, you know, we just all got together and put on a party and then kept doing it. And like, yet again, people have picked it up a lot with press. But um, I think just like definitely seen a lot more like uh, other collectives doing kind of similar things to us which is like really inspiring I've a lot of people I've met as well have been like learning to DJ where they wouldn't have before and kind of feeling more confident and it's something we've always encouraged it's like people coming to our parties making sure they come and say hello to us and kind of like just pushing people to do it and not be afraid of it. We try and always push the conversation forward from just as you said just like the basics of why why aren't there any women DJs? Well, there are women DJs, and you know, if you if you look, you'll see them. There are women artists. It shouldn't just be this one conversation about gender. We need to also talk about race, about ableism, homophobia, transphobia, all of these things which permeate the scene and are not so trendy to talk about necessarily. I mean, they are in certain ways, and there's a lot of uh, interest in activism at the moment, but a lot of it is very surface level. And we always try and say that what we're doing is not that revolutionary or difficult. It's pretty simple, just like support your women non-binary artists, who, especially artists of color and artists who are from economically 
disadvantaged backgrounds, it's not that hard. The only other thing I was going to mention is like the consequences of when a big artist takes part in the conversation. Like I saw those tweets from Jackmaster and how much of a stir they caused. And I was wondering what you guys were feeling at the time of those. What that reflected really strongly was how all the press was so eager to pick this up. Because, you know, it's, it's a dream crossover for them. It's hype artist, hype topic. And it doesn't actually change anything, <laughs> them writing about Jack Master tweeting about this. That doesn't really affect anything. I mean, like on one hand, it's great because he's probably reaching the demographic of people that go to the kind of parties where you'll encounter harassment, unfortunately. There's a lot of chat about the echo chamber kind of effect at the moment as well, though, and it's easy for us to operate in this bubble where we feel like change is happening, but then you go to spaces where Jack Master might be playing and feel absolutely no change happening. So in that sense, like Joe says, it is good that, that I guess he's reaching a wider demographic with those tweets. But it's always so easy to be like, oh wow, this, this man thought of this, instead of just listening to the women who've been saying this for a very long time. So we've met members of two strong groups pushing equality on the house and techno dance floor, out in the clubs and on the ground. Time to look at a virtual collective bringing together female-identified individuals across the globe to share a passion for electronic music online. Hey, this is Foxwork here, repping Sister. History of Sister started around September 2015 by Tox. Yeah, she just started it to like have a space online for women that do this shit. Within a few days, it was like maybe 100, 200 people, which was dope. Just was a Facebook group and we were all like talking in it and just interacting. And that was the beginning of the community. They were looking for someone else to take over. Um, and Gazal reached out to me to ask if I would. Just since, you know, I guess they realized that like, maybe it would be smart to have a woman of color running a, you know, an international intersectional feminist movement. And, and I'd been really active since day two of its existence anyway. So yeah, I said yes. Probably by the time March rolled around, we were at maybe five, six, seven hundred people. With Sister underlying it, there's this social justice thing underneath it. Um, just creating more spaces for women to play out um, and get paid and travel. You know, these are all long-term things that that being a dude in a certain echelon of the nightlife world will get you quicker than for a woman. So I really just want to remedy that. Could you describe what goes down within the Facebook group? Everyone's just always cheering each other on. It's really great. It's a, it's a genuinely friendly place to be, um, which nightlife in this world isn't always. And I think people really appreciate that. And I've, I've worked really hard to kind of set that tone but the actual group itself um so many compelling conversations like we talk about real shit just like real things that we go through um in the industry real examples of things real people real situations people are always in there asking for advice whether it's about some aspect of production or of djing these are things that nightlife in this industry don't create a space for us to talk about not all the reasons we're gathered in the group um, are positive, you know? So there's definitely a lot of space for free expression. So Carl, in your opinion, how can dance music contribute to the progression of equality? Pretty much like, how is any of this shit helping? <laughs> um, just for one, music and celebration is 
that's something that's inherent to humanity. That's always going to be important and occupy an important part of our lives. I think dance music has historically been a site of a lot of change and of a lot of resistance. It's been a site that people of color and, and queer people, marginalized communities, it's been, dance music has been really important for us. I think of the club as like a place that has the potential to seed revolution and to be a container for the kind of ideas and and sentiments and dialogues that, that do lead to social change. In Berlin, Salt and Sass is a space facilitating conversations on a similar wave. I'm Kat Young from Salt and Sass. I'm Christine Kakari from Salt and Sass. I'm Elisa Stolman from Salt and Sass. There were two ideas behind starting Salt and Sass um, in 2015. So the first is that um, I've worked in music for about 10 years and I kept meeting all these amazing women who were running so much of the industry behind the scenes and I wanted to give them a platform to share their stories and expertise with a wider audience. And the second reason is that when I first moved to Berlin, I actually interned at RA and I met loads of music people through being invited to office parties and going to clubs with colleagues. And I wanted to create a space where women could come along and meet each other and these music people without needing an invite um, or feeling weird about approaching people in clubs to talk about work. So the talks are open to anyone who registers for a ticket. Um, Christine was the journalist for the second Salt and Sass with Susan Langen and Elisa was a guest at the third event um, and are both writers that I admire so I really wanted to work with both of them on this. The main vision for Salt and Sass was always just to kind of make a space for people to come to and like um, meet each other and one of the things I love most about it is the fact that I get to meet lots of really interesting people, get to hear lots of really interesting stories about parts of the industry I maybe only have like a passing knowledge of or that people have been able to like get jobs through coming to Salt and Sass and that's like feedback I've had before as well that just by meeting people they were able to get some more work um, which is really cool. When you look at the beginnings of electronic music whether it's you know places like the Paradise Garage or um, you know the Belleville 3 in Detroit or even kind of in Berlin in the 90s or kind of Thatcherite Britain the rave era that grew out of that these were people whose experience was so removed from any opportunities to be politically or socially or economically engaged and self-determined. Um, so they created spaces for themselves where they could exist. And I don't think that that was necessarily political. I just think it was a matter of necessity. I have an issue with the reliance on nostalgia that exists within dance music and electronic music. I think activism that is limited to the electronic music industry plays a vanishingly trivial role in any wider left movement. I think the first main issue as to why feminism in dance music and initiatives for gender equality in dance music are ineffectual and trivial in the large scale of things is that there's no organization. So we're still all atomized individuals and or small groups working in pursuit of our own self-interest, but we're not challenging systemic inequality or the causes of it. So the main goals of this movement, if, if that's what you could call it, are to either increase visibility for women in the in the industry and to book more women on lineups at clubs and festivals but both of those are superficial changes that make 
a small group of women more successful and competitive in the industry as it exists, but they pose no challenge and offer no vision of reform to that industry. So any progress in the electronic music industry that does not also address the wider system is ultimately trivial. And I know this all comes off really harsh and I don't mean to diminish the positive effects of booking more women on lineups or empowering women to put themselves out there to use technology to make or play women or to provide a space where women and queer people can feel safer than they usually do in public so that they can hopefully make valuable connections with others like them or feel better about themselves and who they are. I think that's really valuable, but it's like how cold medicines only suppress the uncomfortable symptoms of your cold, but they don't actually heal the cold itself. There's another collective I'm keen to meet with for this piece. Copenhagen's Apiron crew are fast becoming notorious for their extended back-to-back-to-back DJ sets, odysseys through techno of all textures. And they just happen to all be girls. My name is Sarah, also go by the name of Mama Snake. Uh, I'm a part of a Pyron crew, and then I run a label called Ectotherm with my friend Courtesy. We're in Lobster Records in London Fields. Would you tell me about the kind of landscape in Copenhagen right now? What sort of climate does the techno house scene exist in? It's really good. It's, I think, the past two years, so many new things have emerged. I think it's really like flourishing with new labels and new party series and off-venue raves. And I can highly recommend going there if you're into like experiencing new new cities. Would you talk me through a Pyron crew? Tell me about the other members, how you formed and even how you chose the name. We formed to have a crew. We wanted to put on club nights and then we quickly kind of also got booked to DJ as the crew for other parties. And actually that also comes into how we chose the name. We actually got a booking, but we didn't have a name. So we had like a super short deadline. And then we chose a pyron because we thought it looked nice and it means no boundaries or limitless. We kind of like that because it also means that we don't have to define ourselves within any very strict concept. We can kind of like change it about the way we like it. And tell me about who's in the gang. Now the gang consists of myself and Solid Blake and Smokey. Uh, Emma, who's Solid Blake, she produces music. Just announced her first solo release, which is super exciting. And then uh, Smokey, Simone, she's like our like visual aesthetic in the crew. And then we obviously all love music and enjoy DJing. Well, that helps. Yeah. <laughs> Have you heard this phrase, techno-feminism? Yes, <laughs> I, I, I have. What is your impression of it? What would it mean to you? I, I think it's, it's such an interesting term because it means so many different things to different people. I mean, it could be based around technology or it can be based around like techno music or electronic music. My interpretation of it is kind of both. I really like this book, I think we actually talked a bit about earlier, this Judy Weichmann. This thing about like how technology can be gendered. I think as a DJ you kind of see it when like me and Emma actually talked a bit about it. Um, like you can go into a DJ booth and it's not really fitting for a woman because like it might be like the decks are too high up or like you can't really reach some parts of the equipment you're gonna use. I've spent whole sets on my tiptoes, it's actually a workout. It's something that you might not necessarily process at the time, it feels like a small detail, but 
We risk putting off new DJs if you think, oh, I physically don't fit into this space. This space is not designed to accommodate someone like me in any way. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so easy to work around, I guess. Like you could just maybe have some boxes in the club you can put up that would be nice to stand on. But I totally get it. Like if especially if you're new and you're already nervous or like, and then you go into a booth where you feel like you're not welcome, kind of. I think it's all revolved around expectations. I don't think like the technology itself is necessarily gendered, but maybe the people who made it expect for it to be used by males and not females. And you kind of see that like within the spectrum. I, th- I don't think it's like you, th- you think a woman wouldn't be able to push buttons on like a CD player or a mixer, but there are some expectations surrounding it. Another thing are quite, quite interesting to look deeper into, which I think this book really like discusses. I think it's important to mention that and just say this is the way it has been set up, but that doesn't mean that you're not wanted here. Yeah. It's been set up like that until now, but people are here to change that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Let's have some final thoughts from those I've spoken with. Here's Umfang. Music as protest is significant music as a a getaway is significant when it's so hard to even physically just relax um, in any space where you feel like semi-protected. I think like while we can sort of make a momentary safe place for even an hour uh, that's significant. I think it's been so nice to see this whole focus on like safer spaces and actually like forcing clubs to promote this. It makes a big statement just for people going out because it's about going out and having fun and still, I don't know, educate someone who hasn't necessarily thought of that is, is a good thing. I think it's like the smaller things that are really working. Like yesterday at Corsica you see these signs. I don't think they were there the first time I played with like, hey, Corsica promotes safer spaces. If something happens to you, you can always tell the bouncers. Like, it doesn't necessarily work every time, but just the fact that someone actually is concerned with it, I think is quite important. There's a club in Copenhagen who recently fired a bouncer because he didn't act on someone wanting him to help in being harassed. And I think it's it's good to see that there are actually consequences. Not that I want to go about and like get people fired, but the fact that if someone can't understand this, then they can't be part of club culture. Looking to Techno's future, what practical ways can each of us affect change? Here's Coral from Sister. If you go out to shows, make sure you go support women and maybe even like befriend more <laughs> women or people that are not like you. You know, that alone I think is a practical way. Just the dance music can change and become a stronger force for social change in a real way just by collapsing the differences and constructed inequality between people and that alone I think organically changes culture. My name is Serena, I DJ as Peach. Dance music should try and maybe lead by example and go to schools and educate younger people that are impressionable the importance of equality and gender equality. Let's lead by example and how we carry ourselves in our music genre and basically just updating this narrative that we already have in place and acknowledging instead of undervaluing underestimating and undermining. Money is power in a way in the system that we live in and you can choose to empower 
uh, people with money and resources and giving people space. If you want to support someone that uh, is, you know, being underrepresented within their scene for whatever reason, it's like if you have the power to book them and amplify what they're doing in any way, give them space, that's powerful. And the same goes for, you know, like acknowledging the legends and like booking people that you respect from uh, an older time and not just supporting new people that uh, have sort of like co-opted these ideas. We have this analogy of the hedgehogs where we say in a garden, you know, if you want if you want the hedgehogs to come, you have to have the right environment. And if one thing isn't right, like they're not going to come out. So if you want to actually support these people in your community, then you have to make an effort from the ground up. I also like to mention we really put an emphasis on trying to end harassment in clubs and the practical things people can do on this if you see somebody and they look like they're uncomfortable just be on hand in case they need some support it's an endemic problem and a lot of women don't go clubbing in certain spaces because of it a lot of places in london like we'd never go to because you just will get harassed and no one will take you seriously and not just sexual harassment but you know also racist abuse or transphobic abuse or all sorts of other abuse that people might get Okay, that's it for this show. And thanks to everyone who contributed to the hour this month and thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with another blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. 